Well, good morning. It's good to see you and good to be seen. Good to be uh, back together. And uh, thanks to Steve and uh, Dan for leading last week. I, um, well, let me say this. Uh, first of all, go ahead and turn to 1 Kings 12. We'll be in verses 25 through 33 today. And as you're turning there, well, again, just say thanks to uh, Steve and Dan for for leading last week while I was out. I am not um, 100%, but I got a whole lot more percents than I had before. And uh, so, uh, so, so grateful to be upright and back in action a little bit. Uh, as you know, um, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, whatever sickness I had sort of set in, laid hold of my head. And so I was preaching while impaired. Uh, didn't, uh, I, I snuck out before anybody could write me a citation. But uh, I didn't drive home. So anyway, um, I've spent a lot of time in bed the last couple of weeks, but uh, I'm much better now and glad to be back here. We're going to be, again, in 1 Kings 12, I'm continuing this uh, short little teaching series called What in the World is Going On? And just trying to shine some light on some things going on in the world right now as we re-engage this year that we we sort of... uh, do so with eyes wide open, understanding a little bit about what is this crazy world that we're walking through. And so I plan to uh, wrap this up next week, and then we'll be back in um, the Gospel of John. And so um, that'll be that. But let's look at 1 Kings 12 together, uh, verses 25 through 33, and I'll ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Reading out of the English Standard Version, listen to the word of the Lord. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord to Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make sacrifices. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for your word. As always, we open it with the expectation you have something to say to us in it. Lord, we readily admit that we can do so frequently in a casual way, haphazard and half-hearted, 
with ears inattentive to your voice. And so, Lord, would you quicken us at this time, knowing that there's something you want us to hear. Your word is living and active, and we pray that you would make it so to us today. And so speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, if you've been uh, with us the first couple of messages in the series, you know I've, I've sort of camped out here in this passage, really, again, sort of examining some things, shining light on some things going, in, in, uh, going on in our culture and seeing, uh, in some respects, how they're illustrated through this um, account in 1 Kings chapter 12. And so we've been here, um, at, you know, at, at least at a glance uh, over the last couple of weeks, I wanted to focus back on this passage um, this morning for a particular reason, which I'll get to in a, in a few minutes. But in the first message in this series, I suggested that generational change is the wheel that drives history forward. That was sort of the big idea in that message, and we see um, that, again, sort of illustrated in this passage here. And then a couple of weeks ago, I spoke about cyclical patterns in history um, that repeat themselves every 80 to 90 years in, in uh, what a couple of authors have referred to as four generational turnings. And one of the features, that was where I was uh, uh, really um, preaching while impaired. And so uh, uh, that, that, uh, I, I'm sure I convoluted um, a, a fair amount of that. But anyway, uh, part of the point there is simply that um, that there is just this cycle that repeats itself and, 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 and probably very often in that cycle, um, any given generation will approach a crisis and think this is the end of the world and we're getting ready to drive off of the cliff of human history. And I think there are plenty of people who have felt that way and feel that way right now. And, and again, at some point the end will arrive and it really will, it really will be that. But um, as, as history has played out, it continues to cycle back around. And one crisis leads to another uh, sort of cultural high in a new era and so forth. But one of the features of that cycle in Anglo-American history is that every uh, fourth generational turning is a crisis generation. And I said, we are living uh, in one right now that, that really this... Uh, over a period of, you know, probably since 2008 and, and on, it's just a, a generation defined by uh, crisis and unrest and that kind of thing. And that's really not any particular revelation, is it? That we know that's uh, certainly more than in uh, the years preceding that, it's been defined that way. But we're living in a crisis generation now and suggested that the climax of that crisis may still be ahead of us. And historically... Uh, in the aftermath of the crisis, there's a major reordering of society that is, in some respects, the byproduct of that crisis. And uh, often that reordering is, uh, um, in large part, achieved or worked out by way of strong government controls. That, in other words, what, what, what history has tended to produce in our history is that, uh, is that crisis sort of gives 
um, authority to stronger government controls and even among people more interest in seeing the government exercise more control and that you have uh, kind of new systems and programs and so forth um, implemented. Most recently in the post-World War II era, that would have been true. But in some respects, things to be seem to be lining up to make that sort of thing more plausible. Uh, there, there seems to be a growing appetite, just generally, for bigger government. Um, again, more than we've experienced probably in recent decades. There's, there's just a, a more greater appetite from that on the parts of some people and maybe just more willingness to see that happen uh, among others. More specifically, surveys uh, have indicated that younger generations in particular are friendlier to the idea of big government and, uh, and even sort of socialistic uh, versions of that. And meanwhile... So there's not only that going on, but meanwhile, there is this widening divide as, uh, as America becomes more polarized, right? Again, I'm not saying anything you don't know that you're not uh, observing and paying attention to, but there's this widening divide between sort of the ideological right and left. In America, in particular, it's popping up in, in Europe and places as well, um, in fact, even right now, this weekend, there's a, uh, not only in Europe, but in Canada, there's a protest going on in the, in the capital uh, in Canada. If people are upset with the government in Canada, you know there's something to be upset about because they've got a real big appetite for a uh, big government up there. But, but part of what's going on is in that polarization, there are opposing visions for the future of America, right? I mean, there, there are just, there are competing uh, ideals that are, are really uh, almost entirely the opposite of each other, each other or becoming more and more opposite of each other. Just opposing viewpoints of, of how America ought to be, what this sort of the ideal society is and so forth. And, and part of the relevance of that is that when each side thinks the other side is not only wrong, but evil. Uh, then neither side is willing to be governed by the evil 51%. You tracking with me so far on that? That when, one, when each side thinks the other side is evil, neither side's willing just uh, to sort of sit idly by and be governed by a, by a small majority who they think is evil. And it's why uh, I'd say that, um, you know, I don't think that reality is just going to resolve itself. I mentioned last week that, um, you know, one of the patterns in this uh, sort of cyclical nature of our history has been that uh, the climax of crisis is often a war and there really could be conflict of that sort you know of one kind of another but this is not, this is becoming so polarized and it is is so characterized by uh, and more and more characterized by sort of the concept that 
the other side is not just wrong but evil. That that's, we're not just likely to wake up one day and everybody's gotten over it. Um, in fact, I, I would say it, uh, there's, who know, there's any number of ways that that might work out. But what seemed to me to be um, the most, maybe the most likely possibilities is either an outpouring of the Spirit of God that just changes the minds and hearts of people and brings a unity that's really supernatural. We ought to pray for that one. We ought to labor for that one. Um, But if not that, uh, perhaps some kind of global conflict that unifies Americans with each other against some uh, opposition where the sort of the, the enemy, if you will, is out there uh, some way. The pandemic certainly didn't do that, right? I mean, conceptually, you might have imagined before the pandemic that something like a pandemic could do that, that there's this obstacle that we all face that we unify uh, in opposition to. That, that didn't happen. It, it drove us farther apart. But there could be some global conflict that unifies us in that way. And another possibility would be some real kind of civil unrest. Civil war, so to speak. I, 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 I say that uh, a little bit lightly because, again, we have our own connotations of what that looks like in our history. And that's probably not... Um, you know, sort of a north and south regional kind of thing, not how something could play out. But, but I, I, I'm, I'm sort of delving into territory here, knowing that, that in this whole series, there's a little bit of relationship between good news, bad news, right? I mean, I've said that um, one of the reasons I wanted to sort of embark on this little series was to say there is reason, I think, for us to be hopeful. There is reason for us to be optimistic, But there's also reason for us not to be naive and and to just open our eyes to some realities even as we're looking hopefully toward the future. And so that's the sort of the the nature of kind of what's going on in this widening divide between opposite um, sides of our culture. And with that, there is a greater readiness on the part of many to resort to force or coercion to ensure that the, quote, right side comes out on top in that conflict. And I say that, I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not really um, speculating even about that. If we think of the, after the uh, 2016 presidential election, there were violent, destructive protests, burning stuff. And I don't know if you remember uh, that. That's sort of been, that's sort of way, way old news. Nobody talks about that one much anymore. But there were at the, uh, in 2016, after uh, President Trump was elected, um, in 2020 or the beginning of 2021, after Biden was elected, of course, we had the protests and then the violence that ensued uh, on the Capitol building. So in other words, you, you, you see the manifestation of this kind of stirring going on where people are uh, just increasingly inclined 
um, to, to welcome force or coercion as a means of ensuring that the right side comes out on top. And again, you think of things that are even a little shy of that sort of uh, physical force, but even talks about, you know, stacking the Supreme Court and um, admitting uh, other um, territories as states and that kind of thing in order to just sort of stack uh, Congress in one direction and so forth. It's that sort of uh, impulse that is, is, is being given voice uh, in our day in a way that we haven't seen before and, and that I, in my lifetime, that I can recall anyway. So in that climate where people seem more and more willing to yield power to the, the strong man, so to speak. There's more and more a readiness to yield, to give the sword, so to speak, to the strong man. I, I want us to observe a fundamental truth about power before we too get any uh, greater appetite or too, too big of an appetite for the power of the strong man to work on our behalf either. I want to observe a fundamental truth here about power from this account of Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 12. And I want us to look as we just kind of unpack this passage quickly. Look at what does Jeroboam do to cement the people in this rebellion. You remember what's happened is that the, the, the kingdom's been divided into north and south, a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. That's, that's transpired. And um, in this passage we just read, there's uh, Jeroboam sort of cements the people, anchors them, roots them in that rebellion. What is it that he does to cement the people in this rebellion? Secondly, how does he pull it off? And then third, why does he do it? So let's look at the what first. What does he do to cement the people in this rebellion? Well, if you were reading along there, and again, we've actually touched this passage a couple of times as we've gone through this series, but he invents a whole new system of worship. He just, he just invents a whole new system uh, of worship and deceives the people into committing idolatry. He makes false gods for them to worship, golden calves. Again, that ought to be alarming, right? That's, we tried that one before. But he gives them golden calves to worship, two just for good measure in verse 28. He builds temples that are not prescribed by God. There's no design on that that he's following by God's design in terms of its place or its layout or anything like that. He built it on high places, it says, which often are associated with pagan worship. There are different high places uh, throughout that region of the world that have been places of pagan worship that then they worship on as the people of God. He appointed priests who were not part of the tribe of Levi as God had uh, prescribed in verse 31 there. He created a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month uh, as an alternative to the Feast of Tabernacles, which is on the 15th day of the seventh month. He didn't want them to go to Jerusalem on the, the, the feast that everybody was going to be observing there or any of the feasts. So he comes up with an alternative one on a month that he just 
made up. And they offered these kind of non-specific sacrifices in non-specific ways, it says in verses 32 and 33. Whereas, uh, you know that the uh, Old Testament is quite specific in the way sacrifices are to be offered and um, what and how and, and so on and so forth. So that's what he does. He deceives, he deceives the people of God into adopting a whole lifestyle of idolatry. So the way they live and move is, is just idolatrous to the core. And how does he pull that off? How do you, how do, you do that? Convince a people of God to worship other gods in totally different ways. How do you do that? Well, as we've already observed, most notably, it's because the people don't know their history. They don't know their history. If they did, they would know this golden calf thing is, is, uh, is unacceptable territory. We don't know much. We know not to make golden calves. We would know that much. There was a milestone in their history involving a golden calf, and they should have known it. But they didn't. And when you don't know your history, somebody will retell it to get you to think the way they want you to think. Listen, that is, that is standard in the playbook of dictators and manipulators down through the centuries. That is just, that is just standard. It's even un uncreative. A go-to play, retell history the way you want it to be told to get people to think the way you want them to think. This was, uh, again, has really been true in, in lots of um, different, you know, governments, dictatorships, and so forth. Uh, it, it was sort of famously or infamously true in the former Soviet Union. Uh, that there are jokes about that sort of thing, just about how frequently and uh, whatever that, that history is being rewritten. There was an old joke in the Soviet Union that said, the past is rewritten so quickly, you don't know what's going to happen yesterday. <laughs> and so that, that's, that's one of the ways that he pulls this off is, is because people don't know their history and so he just, he just writes a different version of it essentially. Or at least tells them lies that they would easily know if they knew their history. And this is actually maybe another thing that we would want to make an observation about. Is that uh, when somebody who seems to be on your side begins to lie to you. Uh, you might not even recognize that it's a lie because there's just a... Uh, a, a an exceeding amount of trust granted to that person, especially by those who don't know the truth from their own uh, study or education. They don't know their history. They also either don't know God's commandments or they don't have any regard for them. Because the creation and worship of these golden calves is such an obvious violation of the second commandment. 
I mean, you almost can't imagine what a, what a more uh, overt violation of the second commandment would look like. Don't make any graven images. Don't bow down and worship them. They did both of them in two different places just to make it more convenient. So they're either ignorant of the second commandment or they've decided they just don't care. Or maybe that God doesn't care. Either the way, there's just either ignorance or disregard for it. And so again, you see that this is, this is pretty common in the playbook uh, of lots of dictators as well. Toss out their religion, rewrite their history. That's how rulers change the way people think and what they believe. That's how Jeroboam was able to pull off this deception. The people don't know their history or the commandments. But then the final question is, why did he do it? This is really the one I want to zero in on. And look at verse 27. Because there's the answer to it. And again, it's sort of a twofold answer. The first, uh, well, let me read verse 27, first of all. If this people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. It seems that the first reason, his motivation for do this, doing this, is he just gets paranoid. That might not be the right read on this, but from anything else we know, there's no reason for him to think the people are going to kill him. They were eager. In fact, when he came back from Egypt, they sent for him. They were, they, were, they were glad he's back, wanted him to sort of put him out front of this whole delegation. He's their guy. He just gets paranoid that people are gonna try to kill him. They're gonna go down to Jerusalem. Their heart's gonna be turned back to Rehoboam. They'll try to kill him. And again, that might not, that might be uh, uh, imposed uh, unfairly on uh, the text here. It certainly doesn't say that, but there's no reason given why he would have thought that. And it is one of the common characteristics of dictators, right? Uh, just paranoia and narcissism. They go together like peanut butter and jelly. Uh, they, they, because people who operate by deception and manipulation, just assume everybody else does too. And that somebody's plotting and scheming and that kind of thing, because that's what they would be doing. It's maybe what they did in order to get in power in the first place. So he's, he gets paranoid, but then more to the point, he does this, his motivation for deceiving the people and, and cementing this in this rebellion is because he is seeking his own self-interest. And this is the big shift that I want to draw our attention to today because back at the beginning of chapter 12, we, we read after Solomon's death, Jeroboam had returned to, uh, from Egypt, as I mentioned. He had, he had sort of fled because he had rebelled against uh, Solomon Earlier, after God had told him he was going to give him 10 tribes, anyway, he, he fled to Egypt and after Solomon's death, he comes back and the people sent for him and he leads this delegation to make an appeal to Rehoboam. 
And the way that it reads, he appears to be, it appears Jeroboam sort of the, the chief voice of the people here. That, that he comes and sort of they say uh, to Rehoboam, it says. But in verse, in verse 4, it, it appears that he's speaking on behalf of the people and in the interest of the people. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He is, he is speaking on behalf of the people, representing the interests of the people. Once the rebellion is underway and he gets paranoid, down in verse 27, his concern becomes that they will kill me. You see the shift. The, the interest goes from our, us, we, to me. And he becomes motivated primarily by his own self-interest. The whole deception, the whole construction of this system of worship is in his interest, not the interest of the people. And this is predictably... Uh, the, uh, a shift that unchecked power always makes. Eventually, it, it, it will always tend in this direction. And here's really the big idea of the message today. That left unchecked, power will ultimately be redirected to serve the self-interests of the powerful. Left unchecked, uh, power will ultimately be redirected to serve the self-interests of the powerful. Now again, why is that? Well, because it's not only true of the powerful. Because it is in the nature, the fallen nature of the heart of man to seek our own self-interest. It's one of the reasons why the, uh, the Christian command to uh, look out not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. To consider others more highly than ourselves. That is countercultural. That is upside down from the way humanity thinks. It's radical because it is the default orientation of man to seek his own self-interest above the interests of others. And it's true of powerful people as well. And so if they have power, uh, they will uh, ultimately redirect it to serve their own interests. And it's true whether that is a friendly leader or an unfriendly leader. In other words, it's, it's going to be true. Whoever you give power to, if that power is unchecked, whether it's the guy who you think is on your side or the guy who's on the other side, sooner or later, that power is going to be redirected to serve the interests of the powerful, not your interests. And one of the things that tells us is we ought to be very, very hesitant to yield power, well, to anybody, frankly. But we ought to be pretty calculated about it too. So that when you hand the sword to somebody, so to speak, to wield it on your behalf. Who else is holding a sword to be sure he uses his sword the right way? 
And who gets to say when he's got to lay the sword down or hand it back? If it's unchecked, it'll be used for his interest above the interests of others for sure. And in, in many cases, the people or at least some significant portion of the people become the enemy. And that's almost what is, is sort of, it doesn't really happen in the case of Jeroboam, but he regards them as potentially that way, right? There's a potential threat from the people that he serves. They, they might kill me and that's why he does all this posturing. But in plenty of cases, uh, those who have power, who supposedly are given that power in the interest of the people, will turn that power against the people or, or at least masses of them. And again, it's true whether that's your guy or the, or, or the, the other side's guy. It's true whether it's a right-wing leader or a left-wing leader. And just mark it down. Don't get too big of an appetite for the strong man to sort of deliver the victory that you're looking for. Strong man of whatever, whatever stripe. And no, knowing this is true about power and knowing how much history's proved it to be true, uh, it is particularly astonishing that Americans are willing to give even a listening ear to Marxism in our day. Because Marxists have been so famous for doing exactly that. Now, I, I'm going to say, I know that I'm, because, because again, we could say this about right-wing nationalist leaders. There's the potential for, for that to be one of the ways even our current uh, situation plays out. It wouldn't be the first time in history. But it would be true of whatever sort of variety of ruler uh, might take power. But it's astonishing in particular that Americans right now are willing to give even a listening ear to Marxism. I know uh, I'm sort of preaching to the choir here largely and I'm at risk of sounding like your drunk un uncle uh, yelling at the television this morning, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm not that guy, um, but, uh, but I, again, I'm really, I'm really wanting to shine light on something that plenty of people see pretty obviously for what it is, but that, but that everybody sort of walk forward with eyes wide open. Because there are people giving a listening ear to Marxism. It's very active on college campuses, organized and organizing in lots of other places too, alive and well, so to speak. I spoke a little bit of this subject about a year and a half ago in a message from First Timothy chapter 6. I don't expect anybody necessarily to remember that. Some may remember the quote that I shared by G.K. Chesterton in, as part of that message. So this would be the little uh, hook that might associate it for you. But Chesterton said, the reformer is always right about what's wrong. He's generally wrong about what's right. The reformer is always right about what's wrong. 
He's generally wrong about what's right. And so you have people who will, who will look at what's wrong with society and they will accurately make an assessment about what's wrong. There's injustice in the world. There's unfairness uh, in the, the world. There are systems economically and legally and so forth that are, um, are, are imbalanced are skewed in, in the favor of, of some people and the disfavor of others. They'll see that and accurately make an assessment about what's wrong, but then be terribly wrong about what's right. And one of the ways that, that some in our day are just terribly wrong about is thinking that Marxism offers a right solution. And again, I know, like I said, I'm preaching to the choir. I sound like the drunk uncle, um, but, it, but it's the, the shocking thing is how many people are, are, are willing to be really persuaded by something that has such an abysmal record of failure, of abuse of people, of oppression, of misery. I mean, just a, a, an, an abysmal record of that. That somehow it sounds good and appealing, the idea of redistributing the wealth, right? And power and everything else. And they redistribute the wealth until the wealth is gone and then just redistribute misery. And there's an inexhaustible supply of misery. And that is the record time and time again. And, and lest anybody uh, think, uh, again, we're, we're talking about something that's sort of all in the past and gone or whatever. Um, again, part of the, what I mentioned in this message I was referring to uh, about a year and a half ago, I, I just made reference to cultural Marxism or critical theory. Again, if it rings a bell at all, I uh, emailed some information out um, as a follow-up to that message, but, but critical theory is downstream of Marxism. And I, the real short version of this is that you, you may know that Karl Marx's philosophy was really had to do with uh, the economic realities. And so that there's sort of an economic ruling class and a working class. And the working class is oppressed by the ruling class. And so to make things right, the working class needs to sort of stage this violent revolution to overthrow the ruling class and establish this new order of things, which will be the new order. And that'll kind of be the, like societies evolve to the point where this will be uh, the sort of happy situation that we've all been working toward, but it'll have to be uh, initiated by you know, this kind of violent overthrow. But it was, it was uh, again, really an economic ruling class and a working class. What cultural Marxism does downstream of that is sort of spreads that to all sectors of society and, and applies it in all kinds of social settings. So it divides society into oppressor groups and oppressed groups. Uh, by, it does so by uh, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, gender, race, religion, and anything else why there can be a majority and a minority. It's applied in this way. 
And essentially, those in a a majority group are oppressors and those in minority groups are oppressed. And see, the the real rub is that in this philosophy, that, that sort of construct of oppression and oppressed is so baked into systems and structures that the whole thing needs to be torn down and something else needs to be built in its place. And it's why you'll hear language about dismantling systems and structures and so forth. Um, It is not reform. It is revolution. It is burn it down and build something up in its place. Now you go do your own reading. I'm uh, I'm not making that up. I don't think I'm misconstruing it either. That's essentially it in a nutshell. Cultural Marxism or critical theory. Structures, systems, and institutions that perpetuate the privilege of oppressor groups need to be dismantled. It's really just communism version 2.0. Now, here's what what I do want to say. We ought not to conflate, to sort of combine or mix together um, systems as if they're the same thing when they're not the same thing. Okay, big government... And, and, and big, more government spending and programs. So that, is not, that doesn't equal socialism. That's not what socialism is. It's just more government spending. I'm not a fan, if I can uh, give my personal opinion, but that's not socialism. It's certainly not communism. We don't do ourselves any favor by confusing the, the, the two. But communism is interested in really government ownership of uh, property, of capital, and so forth, and the real control of that. And so again, I'm really not, I'm, 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 not, I'm not using, um, I'm, I'm trying not to misuse the word when I say it's communism verse, version 2.0. Uh, the, the, the current democratic socialists in our day and the way that they are organized and their, their inspiration comes from uh, communists and communism and Marx himself. And it, it's get a little bit repackaged in that rather than the, the sort of violent you know, over, uh, overthrow of powers or whatever, it's a, it's, it's a little more subversive. Uh, they we certainly want to work through the political process but also to work subversively through the political and social processes and so forth. Um, but, the, but that whole philosophy, I mean, I really don't care what you call it. And I don't so much care how you repackage it. That philosophy is bankrupt and it has been an abysmal failure everywhere it's been tried. And not, not only, this is not just a matter of whether it's a good or bad economic system, it is um, people who we're supposed to care about suffer as a result of it. People who they claim to care about suffer as a result of it. People who they will say it is their good intention to take care of, the disenfranchised, the poor and the lowly and the weak and so forth will end up suffering miserably along with everybody else. Everybody ends up poor and lowly. 
And it always seems to devolve in that direction. And again, you don't really even have to know history. I said one of the problems of the, 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 the people of Israel here in uh, 1 Kings 12 is they didn't know their history. You don't even have to know your history to know that this is a failed system. Uh, you really just have to read the news. Because it's, it's current in Venezuela. I mean, there, this week, this past week, there was a review um, of, of some sort I read just briefly about um, human rights violations at the United Nations. The United Nations uh, Human Rights Commission or whatever it was was reviewing a report, an update on human rights violations uh, alleged, you know, accusations made against Venezuela, and there was sort of research and investigation into that. That's just this week. And of course, there have been millions of people fleeing the country. The population has actually declined in Venezuela. The numbers are a little bit disputed. I've, uh, I've read it's up to 6 million people who have left the country in a, in a country of about 22 million. It's a system so good People just can't stand it. Leave them by the millions. And that's happening right now. You, if you, you read international news, uh, you read it even right now. But if you do study history, you'll know that's not an isolated case, right? And even in our lifetime for many of us, we remember the uh, Berlin Wall being torn down, right? You remember pictures of that when they finally allowed people from East Berlin to come over to West Berlin and people are climbing on the wall and all that kind of stuff and then they, and they eventually tear that down. It was a momentous occasion, but the wall was there for a reason and it was a similar reason. You, you may remember the um, history there after World War II, it was a West Germany and an East Germany and a West Berlin and an East Berlin. But Berlin sits in the middle of East Germany. But there's a, there's a West Berlin that's surrounded by East Germans all over. It's, they're surrounded by the communist country. And so what was happening early on is people were just going into West Berlin, taking the train out and sort of fleeing to West Germany. Leaving East Germany, again, by the millions. And so they built a wall around Berlin to keep people in. It's a system so good. We're going to build a wall to keep you in here to enjoy it. It's a prison wall around a city with 302 guard towers, I believe. And a clear, a clear area just well enough that if people tried to escape, there's plenty of room for guards to shoot them. They made it hard to do because they had uh, an interior wall and barbed wire and other obstacles before they could finally cl climb the, 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 the outside wall. And at least 250 people, 250 plus, were killed 
trying to escape. There may have been more than that. Because it's so good. That's the record. And, and, and the point is, it is, it's a vivid illustration of exactly what I'm describing here this morning. That, that, that power that is allegedly undertaken or laid hold of in the interest of the people ends up redirected to serve the self-interest of those in power. That even the people themselves become the enemy. And I, I don't know of an example that's been thoroughly Marxist where that's not been the case in one way, shape, or form. And so of all the things we might imagine, here's what I'll say. Uh, I think it's probably, again, if history, uh, if, if the past tells us something about the way the future is going to play out, and if the, the, the coming generation or generations will embrace um, bigger government programs, systems, and so forth, and, and will build a better future for themselves, and it'll actually be good, even though many can't fathom that that could be the case. But if Marxism was the system that they embrace as a means to that end, it will not be a good future immediately. There will be a lot of misery, misery uh, between now and then. But whatever, whatever system it is, power, if left unchecked, will be redirected to serve the self-interest of the powerful. Uh, you know, I have said that, that I don't really get too worked up about any given election um, in, the, in the U.S. as it sort of vacillates back and forth one party in power, another in power, and so forth. I don't get, I don't get too worked up about any uh, given election as long as we retain free elections. Because I know, uh, I, I know that bad policy is bad. It doesn't matter if it sounds good, right? It doesn't matter if, 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 if you convince people to... Um, elect you based on things that sound good but actually work out to be terrible because when they work out to be terrible there will be another election and the people will get to vote to make a change you follow what I'm saying I don't get too worked up then about uh, whoever comes into power in any given election as long as we retain free elections because we have a system that keeps a check on power but if through deception, manipulation, coercion, or even a willing participation in ourselves, you hand power over to anybody or bodies that are unchecked, and it will end up redirected to their own interests. And again, there are uh, certain dynamics of that uh, if not taking shape right now, there, there's, there's certainly opportunity uh, for that to play out in any number of different potentially nefarious ways. And we need to be cognizant of that to the extent that we ourselves are sort of engaged in that um, political process 
and in an educational process and so forth. Um, but also so that we are um, alarmed about the right things and not un unduly alarmed uh, about the wrong things. Well, I'll put a little, uh, tie a bow around that message today. And uh, next week, um, I'll have something a little bit more optimistic to say as we talk about this, uh, this uh, relationship between the, the sort of the good news and bad news. There is reason to be optimistic, but reason not to be naive. Reason not to be naive. Uh, and we ought to be, um, you know, wise as serpents and gentle as doves as we engage our world. Let's pray. Father, we do worship you, exalt you as our great God and the great God of this universe. And Lord, we just thank you that you are, that you are in control. As I said before, that, that even the craziness that's unfolding now or unfolds at different times, that is, is your plan A and not plan B, that you're working it all together for good and you know the end from the beginning. And so we trust you. Lord, we do pray you would open our eyes to see what it is we need to see. Lord, that you would prompt us to do the things we need to do. But Lord, that you would encourage us never to fear and never to lose heart. Because ultimately, um, our hope is not in this world and it's not our home. And so Lord, continue to lift our eyes upward that we might just more often gaze upon your beauty and the radiance of your glory that you've revealed in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.